So as I had said at the beginning of our service, we are continuing our series through the seven deadly sins. And as we consider the place of these deadly sins in our culture, the majority of them are either dismissed or they're considered only relevant in these egregious displays of immorality. You know, for example, we have greed, you could argue, is built into our economic framework. We consume shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians as we envy their lifestyles. We vicariously try to live through them. But there's one particular vice that is feared, I would argue, above the remainder of the seven in our modern culture, albeit probably for the wrong reasons. We fear the sin of gluttony. One of the fears that we have in our culture is that we fear being overweight and attractive, or excuse me, unattractive. One way to see this is the diet industry rakes in $50 billion a year. We work out excessively, we count our calories stingily, and usually it's not for the ultimate benefit of what a balanced diet looks like or does for our overall health, but so that we can reach this this culturally accepted weight, figure, or BMI. If the number on a scale is below a certain threshold, then we feel like we can be considered beautiful. Obesity is stigmatized in our world and often leads to all kinds of discrimination, from employment to... uh, Studies show that that, uh, obesity is a cause of discrimination to keep people from even getting loans from a bank. So it's no wonder that we feel these cultural pressures to fit into a very specific body mold. But at the same time, as a culture, we we do have a disordered relationship with food. We, I say we, really the truth is I, I would gladly go through the drive-thru of Taco Bell ordering a chalupa with extra nacho cheese because it saves me the effort of having to make my lunch later in the day. Expend that energy. But then the very next day, walking through the grocery stores, walking through Whole Foods, ensuring that we're only buying organic food, scouring the ingredient list for anything that might seem artificial. Right? Even if we're in a fixed income and, and we struggle, we can't shop at Whole Foods. Go to Aldi or, or Giant Eagle. They don't do us any favors because unhealthy, highly processed food is cheaper. It's expensive to eat well. So it's a struggle. We have a struggle with food in our culture. Our fear of gluttony today reveals to us that there is something that is broken. It shows that we are often more concerned with the externals than we are on the internals. We're more concerned with the number on our scale or how big our waistband is, than we are about what is going on inside of our hearts. Now, the caricature of gluttony, if you've seen gluttony represented, it's usually depicted as this big man who is just stuffing his face with food. And sure, that can be an example of gluttony. But gluttony is not just about those who are overweight. Frankly, someone who has a high metabolism may be more gluttonous than anyone else, but you'd never see it externally because their weight doesn't match up with what they're consuming. It isn't even just about overeating. 
Traditionally, even the diet zealots can be gluttonous as well. So let me try to take a step back and let's define gluttony. Gluttony is not ultimately about food, but instead it's about the habits of our heart. Now, gluttony is usually revealed through our relationship with food, because gluttony reveals that there is a disordered desire. This vice is about feeding our faces, sometimes quite literally, with pleasure. It's a quest for gratification. It's not just about how much we eat, but about how much pleasure we receive from the act of eating and why. When we eat, we get joy from eating, joy from tasting, the experience of and satisfaction from feeling full. The act of eating is pleasurable, and this is a good and healthy desire. God has provided this desire for our own sustenance because food is essential to life. If you have no desire to eat, that's going to affect your ability to stay healthy and, frankly, your ability to live if you never eat. As we think about gluttony, food is not the problem. We have Jesus, for example, who regularly went to parties, regularly went and feasted, dined with others. It was one of those things that the religious elites were constantly criticizing him for, that he dined and feasted with sinners. Jesus illustrated the no-win situation with these leaders. In Matthew 11, 18 to 19, he said, For John, this is John the Baptist, not the Apostle John, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So if we have an example of Jesus feasting, then feasting itself is not the problem. The problem is that we use food like a drug to give us a pleasure fix. Last week we saw that wrath was was anger unhinged. Instead of keeping anger as our servants, you know, possibly motivating us in positive ways to, to positive action against injustice, we go down the path of wrath when we are mastered by it. In the same way, food is pleasurable, but it's a bad master when we use it to satisfy ourselves in ways beyond what it was supposed to. Paul wrote to the Philippians church, warning them about how others were motivated by, as he says, and I quote, the God of their stomach or the God of their bellies. It's Philippians 3, 19. He wrote to the Corinthians, reminding them of their freedom, their freedom to eat and drink. But that freedom must have some limits. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, I have the right to do anything, you say. He's quoting them. But not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. The concern with gluttony is not what it does to our bodies, but what it does to our souls. In the words of Rebecca DeYoung, gluttony is feeding your face and starving your soul. So the traditional understanding of gluttony, how how you can kind of identify what gluttony looks like is there's five categories of what this vice can look like in our lives. And an easy way to remember it is the acronym FRESH, F-R-E-S. 
S-H. If we are eating fresh, we might be a glutton. Here's somewhere I wanted to try to, you know, last week I talked about Snickers being, you know, uh, having a poor marketing campaign. Here we got Subway now too. We'll just keep finding these, uh, these restaurants or foods. So fresh stands for fastidiously, ravenously, excessively, sumptuously, and hastily. So we're going to look at each one of them in terms. So first, I'll put them up here, fastidiously. If you're looking at that and being like, I don't know what that means, fret not because I didn't know what it meant before I started uh, doing some prep for this. Fastidious, by definition, is when you are very attentive or concerned about something. Now, if we think about fastidious in terms of food, it means that we are putting a lot of emotional energy into the expectation of getting certain pleasures out of the meal. So the person who is fastidious is only focused on themselves and getting, attaining their pleasure regardless of the cost. C.S. Lewis addresses this form of gluttony in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it, it is an incredible work of fiction. Lewis imagines this written correspondence between two demons. You have Wormwood, who is kind of like a demon in training. He's trying to like earn his, I don't know, earn his horns. I don't know what demons earn. And so he's writing back and forth with his more experienced uncle, Screwtape. Now, as they talk about gluttony, Screwtape says, you know what, we're not just trying to push the overeating train anymore. The message from hell is that they're changing their policy on gluttony. And the woman that he provides as an example is someone who refuses to eat the food that is put before her. She says, oh, I, I, I don't want that. I'm not that hungry. All I want is a small piece of toast and some weak tea. She's eating so daintily that she wouldn't ever think that she is gluttonous. But in this example, she is only focused on what she wants. She is only focused on her own pleasure into the food, not taking in consideration the preparations of the host. So this might be like the restaurant patron who sends his or her food back two or three times until it is perfect. He doesn't care what kind of inconvenience he is making for the waitstaff. Or the mother who is so fixated on health that she will only allow her kids to eat organic, non-GMO food. We couch it as being a, a connoisseur or caring about our health, but really... What's at heart of this is that we're only considering our own pleasure and we're going to do whatever it takes to get it. Now, this one was a little convicting for me because those of you who know me know that I am a very picky eater. I always have been. Right? The, the running joke in, uh, early on in our marriage, my poor wife married me, um, was you know when we would go somewhere and it's kind of like people know that I'm a picky eater and they're like, well, what doesn't he eat? And the running gag was like, it would probably take us less time just to tell you what he does eat, right? I, I, as, I've always been this way. As a kid, I had such a, a, a quick, like, gag reflex. I'm sorry if this is too much information. But, like, one of my triggers was broccoli as a kid, and that'd be the last thing on my plate. And I would just try to just get it down, but it wouldn't stay down. And I would, like, look up at my mom and be like, can I still have dessert? And, it, you know, she would say how it would break her heart. But, like, that just, I, I had trouble eating a lot of foods. Very texture-sensitive. So does being a picky eater fall under this category of being fastidious? Am I a glutton because of what I will and won't eat? 
Well, maybe, uh, probably a yes and no. Now, my gut is to say that these aren't always the same things. Right? If you, if you have a sensitivity, like if you do have a, like a tactile sensitivity, it might be similar to someone who has like a, a, a food allergy, maybe if you have a gluten allergy or a peanut allergy. It's not gluttonous to make your host aware of those special needs, even if it does make things a little bit less convenient. Okay? There is a difference between being a picky eater for, the, seek of, for the, the, the purpose of seeking your own pleasure you know, to, to wanting to avoid anaphylaxis. I think that is a little bit more justified. Now, that's probably the most unfamiliar trait for you, so I'm going to go through the remaining four a little bit quicker. Uh, next for R, we have eating ravenously. So being fastidious is about what we eat. Ravenous is about how we eat it. It's eating in a selfish way that does not care about others, right? This is the person, this has been me from time to time too, right? Who, you have a large party, you got pizza, you're one of the early ones through the line and you just pile like four or five slices on your plate to make sure that you have enough because the worst thing that would happen is that you go back and there's none left. It's kind of like hoarding food. You're not concerned about the people behind you we're just concerned about our own satisfaction in that process. So that's eating ravenously. Next, excessively. So it's probably self-explanatory. It's eating too much, right? This is, if you've watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, this is Augustus Gloop, you know, he just wants to eat everything in sight. So when our eyes are bigger than our stomach, we, we have an appetite that is bigger than what's sufficient for our body's needs. All right, the S is eating sumptuous, too sumptuously. Something is sumptuous if it is magnificent and expensive looking. Now, as it pertains to food, think about this, how we call certain foods rich. When we eat rich foods, we want the food to be delicious, right? Sumptuous. Those rich foods help us to feel satisfied, help us to feel full. I would say this characteristic of gluttony has fueled the heating habits of our country. Our meals largely consist of beef, butter, cheese, fried fatty foods. They're all cut from the same cloth of being sumptuous. Now, there isn't anything inherently wrong with good, full-flavored food. But when we come to expect it, we struggle to have an appetite if we're not eating anything that falls under this category, right? Fruits and vegetables, things that are healthier for our bodies and, I would argue, minds come across as unappealing. Now, this this characteristic of gluttony is the type of trait in previous generations that the Lenten fasts targeted. Back through church history, you were to abstain from these rich foods as, as a season, as an opportunity during Lent to draw closer to Jesus. This is what comes, you know, the, you guys know that the day before Lent, so this Tuesday is called Fat Tuesday. Uh, Fastnacht Day, if you're, I don't know, is that like German or Pennsylvania Dutch or something? But the name Fat Tuesday comes from the practice of trying to use up all of the fat in the house. Meat and fats that were used for cooking used to be kept in a, in a cool, dry place called a larder. And so on Fat Tuesday, the family would eat everything out of the larder, empty it, so that there wouldn't be the temptation to continue to eat these sumptuous foods during the Lenten fast. 
And we still see some of this today in, in Roman Catholic tradition. Right? During Lent, Catholics abstain from meat on Fridays. In previous generations, they also abstained from meat byproducts like eggs or cheese. Once again, the purpose of fasting from these foods was to open up our soul to more of God. More on that in a minute. But I was pondering this, right? So, you know, we, we say, okay, and, you know, Pittsburgh, which is highly Catholic, we have uh, a lot of people who don't eat meat on Fridays. They're, they're fasting from that. But what we've replaced it with is all of these fish fries, which, I, you know, I, Swissville's got a great one here. Right? I, I love eating that. But doesn't it seem somewhat counterproductive if we're just saying, all right, we're not going to eat beef on Friday, but we're just going to eat something that is soaked in oil, Right? It, it, I think it's defeating the purpose of what the intent of uh, eating, you know, fasting from these sumptuous foods. So, sumptuous foods can be highly addictive to us. Last one, we have eating too hastily. Eating too fast, this is an inability to delay gratification. The obvious culprit, you know, when you think maybe the caricature of gluttony is the one who's like finishing their plate in record time, they're shoving the next bite in their mouth before they've swallowed the first one. But eating hastily, what it ultimately has to do with, it's not about the speed, but it's about the unwillingness to delay gratification that comes from eating. So what's probably more, what's probably more common in this category is the person who is a habitual snacker. Just kind of walks through the house, constantly grabbing pretzels here, drinking a Diet Coke there, grazing throughout the day. Right? It, it, it reveals that there is an inability to wait until the next scheduled meal to eat. Now let me pause for a second. Some of you might be feeling like, man, I just got put on blast. You know, like, I know as I'm reading through this, I don't often consider myself a glutton, but the reality is I show, exhibit a lot of these traits off and on. And this is why I wanted us to study the seven deadly sins, because they are so accessible to us. We all deal, as we saw last week, with anger in one way or another. I'm sure we all struggle with our relationship with food. We all have desires that center around food, and we're constantly giving into those desires without constraints, without thinking too deeply. And the problem, like most things, is when we give into that need, when we give into that craving to satisfy, it doesn't actually solve it. It just escalates it for the future. But this is what makes, kind of apart from anger, gluttony so difficult. Right, last week we saw the, that the Desert Fathers, as it pertained to anger, had this call to remove all anger from lives. Not, not that there's not ever times where it might be appropriate for us to respond in anger against injustice. But the problem is that if we inventory anger, most of it is probably very petty or self-serving. Right? You could arguably go cold turkey on your anger, but you can't do that with food. You can't stop eating altogether. As I said earlier, food is good. It's supposed to be pleasurable. God made it that way for our benefit and delight. Gluttony does not call the eating and enjoyment of food sinful. That isn't the problem. But food doesn't satisfy us permanently. We always need more. 
You, you might even go, I don't know, Ruth Chris's Steakhouse. Uh, you might even revel in some kind of culinary masterpiece, but it's fleeting. You're eventually going to get hungry again. The problem arises when we use food, which is natural, temporary, fleeting, to fill the void of the spiritual, that which should have substance in our lives. We often use food instead of God to fill the, fill the places in our lives where we feel deficient. Our quest for meaning to shape our identity, our friendships, we often, those deficiencies we fill with food. I mean, in case you aren't convinced, I mean, think about this. Think of the, the, the stereotypical breakup between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. And after that split, what does, you know, stereotypical self-care look like? Eating chocolate. I was going to say lounging on the couch with a half gallon of ice cream and a spoon eating directly out of it. Right? But chocolate works just as well, too. We use food to satisfy when we are feeling empty. In the words of Frederick Buchner, a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. Let me say that again. A glutton is one who raids the icebox or the pantry or wherever you store your food as a cure for spiritual malnutrition. When we feel empty, we go to comfort food. We reach for chocolate, alcohol, fast food, sweets. And the science behind this is not helping us at all. Dr. Um, Robert Lustig, he wrote a blistering book. It's a, it's a fantastic read. It's called The Hacking of the American Mind. Subtitle's important. The science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. It's a pretty weighty title, but how does he deliver? Well, this guy, I don't think he's a Christian, um, but he tracks through, he's a psychologist, psychologist um, and he tracks through the psychology of what sugar does to our brains. He differentiates the difference between pleasure and satisfaction. Right? The hormones of those two feelings are dopamine and serotonin, respectively. Sugar attacks our dopamine centers. It gives us this cerebral high when we consume it. It affects our brain, and we just desire to consume more and more and more of it. Now, it does come off a little bit conspiracy theory-ish, but, I mean, look at the nutrition information in the grocery store. The vast majority of foods that we consume has loads of added sugar, right? That sugar is intended to give us these cravings that we want and have come to need. When we are feeling empty, it is so much easier to hit that dopamine center with some sugar than it is to wrestle with the spiritual ramifications of what we're going through. Additionally, no person is an island, and our decisions affect others, both globally and right in our own homes. Right? The U.S. eats more meat than any other nation per capita, not just because we're a large populous nation, per capita. I forget what the closest second was. It might have been Australia. Canada's like two-thirds what we eat. Gluttony means that we are so attached to the pleasure that we are unwilling to give it up. Right? Would you be willing to give up alcohol to care for the alcoholic that visited you regularly? Are you willing to give up buying that sumptuous food, those rich foods at the grocery store, because your spouse is trying to diet and struggles with self-control? 
as a parent, are you willing to make healthy eating decisions to model that for your kids? Right? This is what often goes on at my house. It's time for dessert. Austin gets his three Oreos, and then I just pound eight of them. And he asks, how come dad gets so many? What's the response? Because I'm an adult. I can make my own decisions, right? What kind of nonsense is that? You know, it's a, I do as I say, not as I do. It shows that I am more attached to the pleasure of eating Oreos and stuffing my face. I mean, when it comes to Oreos, who isn't? But I, I'm fo- more focused on that than what does it mean for me to model and stand with Austin and saying, this is a healthy amount for you, right? I shouldn't just be able to make unhealthy decisions because I'm an adult, I mean, I, I have that freedom, but I will not be mastered by anything, right? So let's come back to that scripture, because I know I didn't give you a lot of Bible today. But, I, you know, the Bible doesn't speak explicitly about gluttony very often. Uh, but, you know, the, the concept of gluttony permeates that. So I'm going to go back to the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians 6.12. Paul says, you say, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is good for you. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Gluttony is when food has mastered us and we gorge on it to avoid spiritual starvation. So how do we break ourselves out of this box that we find ourselves in? So in the tradition of the deadly sins, each of the, the vices has a corresponding virtue. And the corresponding to virtue, to gluttony, the remedy, if you will, is called temperance. Pleasure motivates our bodies to eat. As I said already, we need to eat and to survive. God has given us that desire, but we need to temper that desire. To temper is to neutralize or to counterbalance it. We need to take the good desire that is in us to eat and temper it so that it will not take over our souls. To use one of the words of the fruit of the Spirit, think about this as exhibiting self-control. Now, how do you practice temperance? And I would say one of the disciplines that has been used throughout the centuries is that of fasting. Of all of the spiritual disciplines, this is the one that is most aligned with the consumption of food. Fasting is making a decision to go without something for a period of time. For example, with the season of Lent coming up for the next 40-odd days, you could give, and many people do, they give, you could give up snacking, you could give up added sugar, you could give up caffeine, whatever food you find yourself gravitating to in moments of weakness. Now, none of those things are necessary for health. Yes, I've seen the memes like not to talk to you until you've had your morning coffee, but let's be honest. As dependent as you are to the jolt of caffeine in your system, it is not essential. Fasting allows us to break that hold that those foods have on us, the dependency that they have on us. And once Lent is over, right, because it's a temporary fast, you can either say, you know what, I feel great. I don't need to continue consuming those things. And you can leave them behind, or you can take them back in moderation as a gift instead of a need. That's one way that you can fast. But the most common understanding of fasting in the scriptures involves a bit more commitment behind it. Instead of just getting rid of one component of your calories— Traditional fasting involves not eating food, not even juices, but only consuming water for a short period of time. These fasts are difficult, but there's something the scriptures point to as as a regular discipline for recentering oneself on the Lord. Right? Matthew 6:16, Jesus says this. I'm, I'm only reading the first like four words, three words. When you fast, 
And then he gives some instructions, you know, that you're not supposed to parade it around. You're not supposed to make a show of it to get some spiritual street cred. But he said, when you fast, not if you fast. Right? The early church understanding was this was an expectation. I think they fasted every Wednesday and Friday. It was expected that most Christians were going to participate in, but yet one that few of us, I would argue, participate in today. I'll never forget the first time I read uh, Richard Foster's book on the spiritual disciplines. I referred to it last week. You know, because when you're fasting for a meal or a day, your stomach, it's, it's like not a pleasurable experience. Your stomach is going to groan. You're going to feel those hunger pains, and it's going to be uncomfortable. But Foster says that you need to remind yourself that your stomach is nothing more than a spoiled child. And I thought, isn't that just such a great description of what's going on? Because it's like a child just repeating over and over again, feed me, feed me, feed me. But the truth is, if you are fasting for a short period of time, your body doesn't really have to eat in that moment. What Foster says you're supposed to do is use those times when you're feeling your stomach is groaning inside. Use those hunger pangs to remind you to go to the Lord in prayer. I mean, you could give an entire sermon on fasting. Maybe we can do that for another time. But for this direct application, the goal is to use it as a tool to temper your desires around food, to realign your unhealthy attachment to food. Fasting is one of those physical tangible experiences that we can use to reconnect to God and his truth in, in the spiritual realm. This season, this season, as I said, is the beginning of Lent. And so I want to I throw a challenge. I was going to say an invitation, but we'll call it a challenge out there. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, the start of Lent. And I want to invite you, or challenge you, put this message into practice right away. Join with me and fast your lunchtime. And there are reasons that someone shouldn't fast if you have, you know, a, a, like some type of dietary restriction that prevents that, you know. Like people who are diabetic, for instance, should be very, very ca- careful about fasting. Seek your doctor's advice. I'm not a doctor. But if you are a regular, healthy individual that this is not too much of a stretch for you, fast lunch. Eat breakfast, eat dinner, but skip your typical lunch. Leave the snacks at home. Don't snack throughout the day. Just bring a bunch of Nalgene's of water with you. Use that time as an opportunity to better focus on God, to listen to what he has to say to you, and consider what food habits need to change in your life. Jesus, we saw in the Gospels when he was in the wilderness, fasted for 40 days at the start of his ministry. Now, such a fast is impossible without divine assistance. I'm not encouraging you to do that. We're talking about one meal here. But when the devil came to tempt Jesus, he started by trying to appeal to Jesus' hunger. Turn this stone into a loaf of bread. What was Jesus' response? Humanity does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Gluttony is not about just stopping eating altogether but it's about keeping things in the, per- the correct order. Right? That we, in our eating, are not preventing ourselves from feasting on God. Instead of stuffing our faces to mask the insufficiency of our souls, we should be feeding, feasting on God. 
All right, as we close, I have three reflection questions. I'll put these on Facebook this week uh, if you don't have time to write them down. But I encourage you, talk about them. Talk about them with others. Look at them yourself, but if there's others, maybe share a meal with someone, but not Wednesday for lunch, and, uh, and, and chat about them. See what comes up. So as you think about that acronym, FRESH, right, fastidious, ravenous, excessive, sumptuous, hastily, which one is the most problematic for you? Maybe a Y can be put on there too. Here's the second one. What food and or drink would be the most difficult for you to give up and why? That can help to reveal in us some of the, the, the strongholds certain foods has in our life. And lastly, for reflection, how is fasting different from dieting? Right? Just not skipping a meal. The goal of that is not to just like be a couple pounds lighter on the scale the next day. Um, how is feasting different from gluttony? Again, the, the amount of food is not necessarily the issue with gluttony. The early church had lots of feasts. Jesus feasted. Feasting and gluttony aren't quite the same thing. So those are the three questions that I want to encourage you to, uh, to think about this week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, reveal your truth to us this morning as we uh, encounter this subject that I'm sure many of us have to deal with. Um, recognize places where we fall short in our relationship with food. Lord, next time we go to the pantry or the freezer for that quick fix when we're feeling a little low, may you remind us of your all-sufficiency for us. Lord, that you are the one who cultivates our identity, our affection, who has declared us to be beautiful and precious in your sight. May we go to the things that have substance, namely you, and not these superficial, fleeting things to fill those voids within us. In Jesus' name, amen.